HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the Christmas Tree Farmers Association of New York, partnering with Grow NYC to make farm fresh trees and wreaths available at green markets. For more information, visit christmastreesny.org. Hi, this is Joe Campanelli, the host of In the Drink. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to the Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest today is one of today's most prolific wine writers, John Bonet. We'll get deep into all things wine with John. We'll also taste an organic, biodynamic Cabernet Sauvignon on the weekly wine sip. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. For nearly a decade, John Bonet served as the wine editor and chief wine critic of the San Francisco Chronicle, winning two James Beard Awards. He's now senior contributing editor at Punch, an online magazine about wine, spirits, beer, and cocktails. He is the author of The New California Wine and is currently working on his new book, The New French Wine. He has written for other publications, including Food and Wine, The New York Times, Savor and Decanter, to name just a few. His decades in journalism brings a critical eye and a well-trained palate to the world of wine and food. And correct me if I'm right on this one. If you've flown on JetBlue, ordered wine, and said, hmm, this isn't bad, John is or was a wine consultant for JetBlue. Still am very much a consultant, right. um, but only in the front of the plane right now oh, in Mint. The good stuff? Yeah, the good stuff. All right. Welcome to, the sh- welcome to Grape Nation, John. Thank you. Before we get into everything, I just want to set you up a little. You, you've traveled immensely. You've written a billion articles. You've probably drank three billion bottles of wine. Just tell my listeners at some point, and tell them quickly, 
there was that moment that you got into the wine thing and your focus became wine. And from that point on, that's pretty much what you were doing. And bring me to the San Francisco Chronicle. Sure. I'm going to use three billion, by the way, okay. as my number from now on. All right. Um, I'll give you the sound bite. Yeah. So I, I wish I had a, a more exciting story of how I got into wine, but the, the 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 quick version is that I grew up with it. My father was was trained as a chef, and he ran uh, uh, food businesses. And but he so, didn't start in that business, right? Well, he started uh, actually. I think it uh, at either General Host or Colgate Palmolive. Corporate guy. Uh, yeah, he was he was a corporate guy for a long time. Uh, but he he kind of evolved into uh, this this food career. Passion. And uh, yeah, and so uh, so wine was just there when when my sister and I were growing up. She works in wine, so clearly something got triggered and in, in Your sister in us. works in wine? Yeah, she sells wine. So uh, and and so so it was there. I osmotically absorbed all sorts of stuff about it, forgot all about it, went off to school, uh, got into journalism, did lots of other stuff. And then when I was in Seattle uh, in uh, the early 2000s, I had already been getting back into wine and uh, buying a lot more wine. Uh, and Seattle uh, was Why a place... Why were you there? Uh, I was working at MSNBC at the okay. time. And, uh, and I, uh, I was just getting really into the Washington wine scene. I, it was a great place to buy, not just local wine, but also great imported wine. Uh, Kermit Lynch had a really big presence there. Terry Thies had a really big presence there. So uh, I was buying lots of wine, getting more interested. I kept sneaking it into my stories, and eventually I went to my editor and said, you know, I should probably do a wine column. And uh, and I did, and it was it was very successful. And eventually what year was that, that? That was in the early 2000s, uh, and that eventually led me uh, in 2006 to The Chronicle. How'd that come about? They reached out to you. They called you, me one day. They did. They yeah. said, we like your stuff. Would you? Yeah. Who preceded you? A woman named Linda Murphy. Was uh, she there for a she long was, No, she was there two years, two, two, and, two and change, something like that, maybe three. Uh, she, she ended up there not nearly as long as I was. Uh, she had, um, was a longtime journalist. She'd been a sports writer, and she'd done wine PR. Uh, and then I showed up at the Chronicle, and uh, what had been, let's call it a a cozier relationship with the industry became a little bit more pointed because, well, as as I, as I, I wanna, have documented I well, uh, I did not love uh, mainstream California that. wine as much as as uh, as my. So you were at the Chronicle about ten years. I was there um, a little under nine years. Nine years, yeah. which is a pretty long tenure. Yeah. Um, all right. So you get to San Francisco. You get to the San Francisco Chronicle. My curiosity is, because of proximity, San Francisco is just south of, you know, the California wine region. Was that what they were covering mostly, or was that the expectation? It it was, but uh, it's interesting. At, at the time that I got there, there was certainly uh, some global focus. Right. There was, even before I got there, there was this tension between tasting imported wine and tasting wine from elsewhere and obviously tasting California people who are in the California industry to some extent felt that that was all we should cover but one of the things I always pointed out is you know, everyone thinks of California as this place that makes wine but it's also and the Bay Area in particular is a huge 
uh, epicenter of wine importing. There's Kermit Lynch, there's Bone Imports, there's Martins. I mean, a lot of the wines that, that people have come to expect as the great imported wines of the world came through the Bay Area. Why, why did they wind up there? I, I think, well, Just some, the, of, some of it was... The people pursued, and yeah, that's where their businesses some, were. No some of other it reason. Was, was an outgrowth of, of both California cuisine, but also Chez Panisse, and the fact that so much culinary history was, was right. taking place in the Bay Area in, uh, and, and California in general in, in the 70s and 80s. That's right. So in following you, which I have been following you for a while, and... After your new book and reading numerous articles, I kind of figured out from the California thing, and I think you're you're validating that you are a proponent of new wine or a new wine movement. And when I asked you about getting to the Chronicle and covering that wine, I think the way you viewed the wines there was different than most people and maybe what they expected. So tell me about. Did you get to the Chronicle sort of feeling that way, you know, that there's a movement in wine that's different than the old overblown Robert Parker? I I didn't get there thinking that only because I don't know that there was that much of a a spirit of newness at the time. Right. I think 2006 was, was kind of a nadir of, you know, a style that had emerged, let's say, late 80s, early 90s, really, um, matured and 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 come uh, uh full circle uh and there just wasn't it certainly in california there wasn't ha- uh, that much happening but around the world there there wasn't really that much happening yet it was just about starting and so from for my end it was sort of easy one thing was i just i couldn't be the wine guy you know the wine writer that everyone else had become which was just Covering the same stuff over and over, and and uh, and you know, looking for uh, consistency and talking about the same known regions. One, because people know them, and two, because you know that's that's expertise. You just kind of keep going back at it. Uh, and I, uh, more than anything, I just I felt uh, I you know I was a critic, but I was also a journalist. And as a journalist, part of your job is to find new things. Restaurant critics don't spend a lot of time going back to review right. restaurants that have been around. They'll review them if there's something new. And I think I saw the same importance uh, of that in wine. And uh, and so some of it was just getting to the Chronicle and looking for things that hadn't been Was it harder about. at the beginning because there was less going on and it began to grow and Somewhat, evolve? Somewhat, and I, and I don't know that I showed up thinking I'm only going to cover totally right. new stuff. I right. think I mean, none just, of this was, it was planned just, it was or just, set up. Or well, like you said, it, it wasn't a movement. It, it was just looking for ways to tell different stories in a really great way uh, and to find wines that were not the obvious wines, the expected wines, and frankly, wines that, that to me had a, had a real story behind them, weren't just another, another supermarket Merlot pumped out and sent to us as a sample because what you're supposed to do or what you were supposed to do before I got to the Chronicle was, you know, you have your Cabernet panel, you have your Merlot panel, you kind of, you hit all the buttons and you do your thing. And I just, that wasn't satisfying to me, but also, you know, if you look back, let's say at, at Robert Parker's career earlier on, um, and now it's, you know, in a way the wine advocate is considered the establishment. But if you look at what he did in California in the early nineties, 
for good or for ill. He created but, a style. But he, he was looking, you know, the style thing is one of those, you know, is, is one of those black holes. But he was looking for something new. In Bordeaux, he was looking for uh, even, you know, he was looking for signs of newness. Again, you can debate whether that was good or bad. It's, I don't even want to go down that road. Right. But, but it's one of those things where what made him really uh, successful, what made people pay, pay attention, was that he was bringing new things to them. And so I obviously, you know, aesthetically, we're probably not totally lined up, uh, to say the least. But, um, but I think when I was at the Chronicle, my sense was you have to do that. That has to be your role because otherwise you're just you're rubber stamping the same old wines over and over again. Right. Do, were you paying attention to wines around the world and what was going on while you were focusing and had to focus on California? I mean, did you have the time or you were distracted? Uh, so I, it was two parallel yeah. things. Here's what's going on in California. Here's what I think. And then, and I'm talking the world. France is big enough alone. Italy, you know, other areas. Um, I was absolutely paying attention um, sometimes to, I think, the frustration of our readers that I wanted to look beyond California. Again, it's not just the California winemakers. There's a lot of people in California for whom this is a local product and if you know, how dare you talk about something that's not from here, uh, making it far worse the fact that I have an accent in my name. Born and raised in New York didn't right. matter. I, it probably wor- was worse that I was from it's, New York than funny, right. if I had been from France. You had nothing going for you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a French-sounding name, a New Yorker, you yeah. know, a whole outlier. So, so I, I was paying attention, and uh, and I was always sneaking things in. And again, you know, when people would be frustrated if I would talk about Beaujolais, I'd be like, well, you can complain all you like, but you go down to uh, um, to Kermit's you know, store on a Saturday in November, and they're having a Beaujolais bash. So it's this an event around the world right this isn't this isn't me you know jamming foreign wine down your throat this is something that is a part of the wine community here um so i was paying attention again there there wasn't quite as much dynamic stuff going on around the world at that point it was still very much that 1990s internationalist style you looked at australia it was all the big shirazes were were still in play uh france was still kind of in that realm of you know big chateauneuf very flashy bordeaux so i was paying attention uh but you know it was um it was certainly a good opportunity for me to try to find what was interesting in California, which is what I ultimately right. did. What? Tell me this. You probably know for sure. Why did Parker never really or ever really get into Burgundy? He, he <laughs> the 82 vintage for Bordeaux, huge well, California Cali cab. Yeah. Huge, the, what that, and, I mean, the, the easy answer is that you know, he, he tried initially, and then he got into this huge dust-up with the Favely family, which sued him successfully. So it was an incident. And so, and after that, he, he assigned out Burgundy, and he really didn't return. Played it down a little. And, I mean, he, he wrote a book about Burgundy before all of this happened, so he certainly... I think intended that Burgundy was right. going to be a bigger piece of what he did, and and the Burgundians were having none of it. And and honestly, Neil Martin, uh, as the current Burgundy reviewer, is the first one in a long time who's 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 covered Burgundy for the Advocate uh, with with the depth of knowledge and, in your and opinion, a level of interest. A, a good job um, that you know that 
it, that really I, I wouldn't say ever, but certainly it's been a long time since they've right. uh, since they've had someone. Um, and I, I I love Neil's work, and I think it's great that that he has that platform because it puts those wines in front of people who might otherwise have been ch- you know chasing much more style style driven wines right. in the past. Um, when you were at the Chronicle, you did a thing called the Top 100 Wines, right? That I did. was a list that you put together. Just out of curiosity, of the hundred, how many were California wines? Well, the top one hundred was was by definition uh, was somewhat constrained in that uh, it was always intended to only be West Coast wines. Okay, so the, so so a lot of it was California, just by definition of the fact that like it. you know we had sure Oregon Pinot, we had some Washington Cabernet right. and Syrah. Um, there was I don't know fifteen percent, twenty percent that was from the Northwest. Um, I did a couple things when I was there. Um, the biggest one was that I expanded our definition of the West Coast to include Arizona. And uh, that was in part having gone there and, and, and having seen that uh, there was really an amazing wine scene there. And if we were going to talk about West Coast wines, it wasn't fair to Lee make Maynard, you know, to, James to be, Keenan well, out. Yeah, to be chasing down you know, everything in Humboldt County, which I, I would have loved if we had found more right. of. But, uh, and then to ignore this really uh, dynamic, growing uh, region. Um, but that was, you know, it was, it was always, I mean, we, we literally, I think, called it the best of the West. Right. That, that was more the prerequisite. I think one of the ways you were able to introduce or talk about the new winemakers was by picking a winemaker of the year. I mean, I didn't see a lot of uh, Mondavis or Chuck Wagners or whatever. I, I saw some very interesting people that are still interesting today. Fair to say that? Yeah, the, the Wagner family has definitely done better in the Chronicle since I left. Yeah. Uh, I'll leave it at that. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, uh, it, it was probably the single most important thing I had to do each year, and it is a political choice, no question. Um, my first choice, uh, very deliberately, was Paul Draper of Bridge, and some of that a legend, though. Yeah, but but it was it was one of those things where it was surprising that he had never gotten that particular honor. And I thought right. um, this was literally three weeks after I started the job that it was it was important to set the tone that this is what I felt California's potential was. So it was him. The next year was Josh Jensen, Calera, um, yeah, uh, Paul Draper's Ridge, exactly, um, Aaron Jordan of of. Bela and also Turley, Turley at the time. Right. Uh, and then, you know, Kathy Kors. And so initially, I think it was, you know, capturing folks who had a very storied careers. And then it, it started to evolve a bit. Ted Lemon of Literai, who, again, you know, by Another, that point had been in it right. 20 plus years. Um, but then after that, it was um, the guys at Arnott Roberts. Uh, it was uh, Steve Mathiason, who I felt really captured perfectly the moment of where California was. Uh, the last uh, the last two, because I gave it to both of them uh before I left was Tegan Pasolacqua at Turley and also his own label Sandlands uh, and Morgan Twain Peterson of Bedrock, whose whose father was Joel Peterson of Ravenswood. And and some of it was that, you know, they were doing similar things. They were very good friends, but they really had embodied this notion that uh, California had a past. They, they believed in heritage vineyards and they had to find a way to bring it into the future. So, um, you know, there were 
very political decisions in terms of who I chose. Did publishers or editors ever come in and say, listen, I need you to think about this guy? No. No? Good. No. I mean, you know, once in a blue moon. Head of sales? Maybe once or twice a year, someone would float a name and I'd sort of shrug and say, thanks thanks for that and and go back and do my thing. Good for you. Well, that got you two James Beard Awards while you were at the Chronicle. Let's, uh, when you left, why did you leave? The Chronicle. Uh, well, the easy answer uh, is that uh, my fiance, now my wife, uh, and I had been dating for three years. Who's in the wine business? Who's in the wine business, and who's also uh, lived in New York when I met her, and uh, was not unwilling to move. But you know, in the course of things, it was clear I I, I felt it was about time to come back to my hometown, uh, and also I. I had literally written written the book on California right. wine or a book on California right. wine, and uh, I didn't know that I could have too, too much more to say. I felt like I had covered a lot of ground. And as I was saying before, you know, it's very easy, and especially in California, you look at how long some of the critics there have been doing their jobs. I didn't want to be the guy who came back, and, and Arnott Roberts is amazing and the wines are extraordinary, but I didn't want to be the guy who was just, whose job it was to just go and like taste the 25th vintage. Right. Uh, so I felt like I had, I had talked about what I wanted to there. It was time to move on. I um, had been negotiating a contract for a book on France. Uh, and so it all just came together. And also, you know, I had, I had weathered a long time in, uh, in the newspaper industry, which uh, is not perhaps having its best days. No. Um, no. And, you know, which is a good segue. Yeah. And, and so it was time to, to try something different. You just have to give me the timelines. But you came to New York kind of a sweet story because you followed your wife here. Yeah. Good guy. And Mostly I was just tired of being on airplanes. Yeah. Which, which I didn't help by then going off to right. France all the time. But um, you currently are at Punch. Yep. Punch is an online magazine that extensively covers drinks, mostly with, with alcohol. Um, are we missing anything between the Chronicle and Punch? Was there a period of time that you? No, I you, I had already agreed to. to uh, I had already agreed to start working with Punch when I when I announced I was leaving the Chronicle. So you made the point that you know you're at a newspaper, and we all know that newspaper is a traditional print medium, and a lot of them have gone online, have sort of run their course. Punch is sort of the opposite you know it's it's online it's it's dedicated to a niche um you get there and you're basically the wine guy right yeah and there's you know we have other fantastic wine contributors um like megan krigbaum but um yeah and, and the thing to remember though also with the chronicle was i had done a decade of digital journalism before I went retrograde and went to work for a newspaper. You were so, a blogger, right? Uh, well, that was a little piece of it. Okay. Um, but I was—I had worked for MSNBC. I'd been the managing right. editor of CourtTV.com. I'd worked for TVGuide.com and helped launch uh, right. some News Corp products. Um, I'd done—you know—I'd worked for the first digital ad agency. You were in the agency. early stages of the people oh, yeah. that were doing yeah, that. Yeah, 1995. Yeah, I mean, you know? that was really, really the beginning. I remember HTML when HTML was, yeah. was an ugly, ugly thing to look at it's it's crazy uh, when you got to punch what was your objective you knew what you left behind we talked about it a little you sure. know what what 
What did it offer you? What could you do? What did you want to do? Well, Talia Bayoki, who's the editor-in-chief, um, had actually been one of my contributors at the Chronicle, so suddenly we were in this neat little reverse position. Um, but I think she and I talked a fair amount, and, and our sense was that the the entire way that wine had been talked about uh, in the past just wasn't working anymore. Uh, the, the notion of all of these classic regions being the only things you talk about in everything else being on the fringe didn't apply not just our readers but but the emerging wine consumer was uh was curious they weren't fearful they were really the first generation to come to wine without uh fear um they grew up with it on the dinner table and they probably didn't want to drink what their parents had on the dinner table and so the first thing that that uh, i wrote was sort of this defining uh essay about where we were going to go um that uh talked about the new mainstream and the new mainstream was basically there is no mainstream because everything uh can have a place and uh so and, the new and, mainstream was taking the mainstream out of play yeah exactly know, yeah. and and it was it all it came back to this 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 truman show analogy in which uh you know like in the Truman Show, suddenly one day he realizes that it's all this construct that's been built up around him, and then he sees the world differently. And that's sort of what happened with wine, is you realize that all these things that people were taking for granted, Bordeaux is this, Burgundy is that, sure, they have a history, but Bordeaux in the 70s was making relatively garbagey wines. And in fact, that was that was what happened in the 80s, was suddenly this, this huge quality revolution there. So all these things that had become... Uh, cast in stone about wine just weren't true. And even now you go back and you look refer at references, and I'm talking references from the past year or two, that are still talking about places like, let's say, the Anjou in the Loire Valley, like all of the revolutionary changes that have happened there in pa the past 20 years haven't happened. They're talking about it like it's just a place for sweet wine. So... I think, our, I, yeah. So I think our 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 our, our worldview was that um, that you know the way that people were starting to consume and are going to consume wine just doesn't have these old boundaries attached to it. Were you are you able to write more pieces here than you were at the Chronic? Can you you have the luxury of more coverage? It's not that different. Not I think different. I think I'm usually at about three pieces per month here. We do two columns and then one sort of we do a thing called crib sheet, which is kind of our our version of a tasting piece. But it's it's more you emb you'll embed yourself into a. We'll just choose. You know, we're going to do. What was the last crib sheet? Uh, the last crib sheet was on orange wine, and and the thing is to which say, is part of the natural wine movement. Well, or it is and it falls isn't, but there. it's 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 its own thing. But it was more saying, you know. Orange wine is this thing we're still talking about as a novelty, but we're really in the second generation. Let's so, tell people what orange wine is. So orange wine is it, just, it is orange. Because it is orange. Usually, it's not always orange. Right. Orange ish. Um, it's 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 wine made from white grapes that you treat like red. So you you soak them on the skins. You get a lot more out of the grape skins uh, than you would in a traditional white wine making, where you press it very quickly. And so there's texture that's different. Um, there's some tannin to it uh, from the skins. From the skins, so it's, it's the skins are left in the. For some period of time, right. and, and that was some of it, is saying, you know, it's not black or white. There's this spectrum of orange wine, and it's it's now this 
aspect of how we think about wine overall. There's people who make white wine and use just a little bit of that technique. Didn't Sutter Pink Zinfandel invent that? <laughs> well, they did the exact opposite. They did? You know, how? They, they took red grapes and they treated them like white. Oh, I thought they did white. And let... um, but it's – so anyway, so, so you know, some of it with Cripsy is to say, you know, we're going to taste stuff, but we also want to give you like a quick – 800 word here's what you have to know about this here's the history and here's where it's at now and don't you limit it to when you're tasting a wine like an orange wine you'll taste four bottles well we'll taste a lot of bottles but you'll and then we usually talk about four we we whittle it down to four right yeah so you go through a whole process and all and some of that so like if you want to know here's the deal about orange wine you could go find those four bottles or any of the alternates and you get a sense of here's the state of the art so if we want to read articles, we go to Punch. The, the site is called Punch, but the web address is punchdrink.com. Punchdrink.com. Right. And it, the, the website is full of, you know, great writers. And, um, and I should say, it's, you know, Punch is, is a project that came out of uh, Penguin Random House. Uh, so it is, you know... In a way, it is an online startup, but in a way, it obviously is is attached to um, to really important uh, uh, publishing means, but also um, again access to to writers and 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 more than that to authors. Uh, and so, it's been I think really rewarding because um, because there is a very uh, big emphasis placed on the writing, right. It's it's definitely a, a writer's haven for the reader and for the writer. Um, was Talia a, a sommelier before? No, she um, she, w- she did some work in in wine retail right. in New York. But retail. no, she um, she was a, a writer. Do did punch does punch give you the opportunity to write about subjects that you wouldn't and couldn't at the Chronicle? I don't. Know that that, that the there chronicle. were yeah I mean I don't know that there were off limit subjects but I certainly wouldn't no, get I didn't away mean with off limit yeah I, you I, I wouldn't I, write I, an I, orange I, wine yeah. for um, the chronicle. I mean I, it's funny I did write an orange wine piece at the Chronicle in 2009 and one of the reasons that I wanted us to revisit it was to say you know at that point this was this quirky thing but now it's like it's on every wine list it's it's a part of the wine world so. What's changed and what do we need to know? Um, I mean, you know, I spend a lot of time writing about France because that's that's going to be the next book, right. um, which I certainly would not have done at the Chronicle. Um, you know, it's I think I think I get a little more space and I certainly get uh, a chance to talk uh, in more detail, uh, which is just by virtue of, of the of, medium of the medium. And yeah, yeah and, and not having to necessarily fit everything into a, a print section as well. All right, let's let's talk about the book because there's the book that's in print and the book you've been talking about that you've been working on, the New California Wine. Um, set me up for this because you wrote a book called The New California Wine because not in your mind, but what you were seeing was a new generation of winemakers that were doing things different than what had been going on. Yeah. So t- tell me, tell me about th- that. Interested you. It did. Well, there's still people who think that it's in my mind. So, uh, okay. but uh, screw them. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, so it, it was exactly that. It was it was seeing uh, that there were um, there were both classic winemakers like Paul Draper at Ridge, but also 
there were um, ever more uh, relatively, not young, but recent winemakers who, uh, for one reason or other, they wanted to work in California. They didn't really like what they had seen happen, and they often had a reference point to where California was in the 70s and 80s. So these guys are post-Silicon Valley billionaires that thought it was fun to buy property and a winery. These are guys that are more committed to Yeah, these, small... these are the guys who are like, you know, maybe they were ski bums, whatever, beforehand. Right. But, you know, yeah, they're, they're the ones working in a, in a warehouse somewhere. They're never going to be able to buy land. Trying to beg guys to sell them juice. Right, exactly. And, and I think it was just this sense that, uh, you know, the Bay Area has a very strong maker movement. And it was a little bit of that. And I think that pervades in California. But it was also... Uh, this notion that that this was this magical place to make wine and to grow grapes, and the style that had emerged as dominant just wasn 't satisfying to a lot of people who loved wine and they didn 't want that they should just have to get it from everywhere else in the world did do these guys pay attention to the tour like the other winemakers, whether it was the Harlins or the Bryants or the insignias, those guys. They just grew grapes and made this over the... Do these guys see the terroir? They're planting different grapes other than Cab Merlot and Chard? So, sometimes they're planting different grapes, and sometimes they, they feel that you know they want to work with the exact same grapes as, as, as the wines of what I call in the book uh, Big Flavor, uh, because there's no reason, for instance, that Cabernet has to just be big and jammy and oaky. If you go back to the 70s and even the 60s, 50s, 40s, 30s, if you want to go back to Inglenook and the old Tokalon wines, uh, Cabernet in California tasted like Cabernet. It was savory. Uh, it was rather rather tannic. It had a fair amount of acid. Uh, it it was, wasn't the fruit bomb. Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't a fruit bomb. And so I think some of it was saying, yeah, it's great. We want to plant Trousseau. We want to plant Vermentino. That's all fantastic. But we also want to, frankly, go back and find an expression of Cabernet that to us speaks to the lineage of, frankly, most of California history. Right. So, is it fair to say it's a more restrained? type of winemaking? It can be, but certainly there's there's plenty of big wines in that realm. It's just that they um, they have nuance and they have they have subtlety uh, and they're looking for some some form of classicism that's not just going back to the past, but is finding a way again to connect the past with the future. So in between the past and now, I, I think you call it there was a lot of technological manipulation. That's what was going on with the wines for a period of time when California was booming? How would you define technical? That, that was some of it. And some of it was, yeah, when, when you decide that, that the chemistry of the grapes doesn't have to be aligned to the chemistry of the wine and you can, you know, you can add acid, you can take acid away, you can do what you want. Um, that's, piece of, that's a piece of it. The other thing that's important to remember is that um, starting mid to late 80s or so was really the first time that um, that true scientific rigor was being applied to viticulture, to growing grapes. And so uh, all of a sudden, all these ideas from Northern Europe, where it's not that sunny, were being applied uh, to the vineyards in California, where it's really sunny. And you had a lot of ripeness increase in a very short amount of time. Wow, I didn't realize that. That's a good point. Um, so the book you're working on is the new French wine, similar approach in France and in Europe, but you were in France. 
there's a whole generation of winemakers there that are approaching how they go about it different than whether it's Loire, Languedoc, Burgundy, Beaujolais, sort of the same. It's it's same. In, I mean, there, there is this notion in most of these regions that something has to change, and it's different in each one. In Champagne, I think they realize that this idea that you just, you're a big house and you buy grapes from everywhere and you blend it together and have a house style wasn't really in line with the deeper traditions of winemaking everywhere else. So there's else a grower France. movement. So there's, it's, it's a grower movement, but it's also this notion that a, you know, a Chardonnay-based wine from the Cote de Blanc shouldn't necessarily taste the same as a Pinot Noir-based wine from the Aube. Right. Right. Um, when is that book? I know you were just in France a couple weeks ago. Um, I followed you on Instagram, and boy, you were all over the place. <laughs> my, my, um, my daily tour update. God, when when are you scheduling that book to come out? Uh, that should be released in 2018. So that's over a year from now. How long is it going to take you to write that? It's a three-year project. It I really mean, it, is. We, I started it essentially right about the time that I moved to New York in 2015, and yeah, it'll be done in 2018. And in that period of time, you'll continue to travel? Yeah. I mean, you can't do it in one trip, right? No, I'm about uh, nine or ten trips in, and I've probably got another seven or eight. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. When you look at a book like The New California Wine, do you go back in a few years? Or do you, in a few years, do you update it? Is that the type of book? It seems like you could do that. Uh, certainly, if, if, if my, agent, if uh, if my okay. agent's dreams come true, right, yes. If you're listening, get uh, off your ass, yeah, will you? But, uh, but um, yeah, I think, I think there will come a moment when a second edition will make sense. Um, honestly, right now, uh, most of the people that I had, had covered in the book or, or discovered um, were, uh, they're, they're, you know, they're, um, they're doing very well. Their wines have become better known. They're, um, you see them all over the country now. Right. There's a, a handful of folks who I, I didn't quite get to. I wrote about some of them, actually, for the Chronicle after, uh, after I switched to being a contributor because I stayed another year to contribute. Uh, I've written about them a little bit for Punch. There's, there's a few, but, I, yeah, let, let's, let's hope in, I don't know, five years, something right. like that, that uh, there's, there's enough to talk I, about. I, I think there will be. Um, we have to take a break. Um, but when we come back, we're not done with uh, the questioning. I want you to answer our wine list, and I want you to answer a few other things. Perfect. Then we're going to taste the wine, and we'll wrap it up. So you're listening to John Bonet, author, uh, wine writer, currently writing for Punch, punchdrink.com, and we'll be right back. Thank you. Ever wonder where your Christmas tree came from? Now you don't have to. New York State-grown Christmas trees are now available in New York City. Trees grown on farms here in New York State are harvested just a few days before arrival to the city. Trees cut close to home stay fresh longer, and trees cut close to home travel less, which reduces fuel consumption of delivery vehicles. Did you know that buying a real tree helps to sustain agriculture in New York State by supporting local farmers and keeping important open space in agriculture production? 
the Christmas Tree Farmers Association of New York is partnering with Grow NYC to make farm fresh trees and wreaths available at green markets in Brooklyn, Queens, and Manhattan. So when you shop local this holiday season, you can include the tree in that list. For more information and a full list of locations, visit ChristmasTreesNY.org. All right, we're back. We're back with John Bonet. A couple more things I want to ask him, and then I want to subject him to our wine list. And then I have an interesting wine that I want to taste with John, and I'm very curious uh, what he thinks about it. So, John, tell me currently wine trends that you're paying attention to or just happening. What, what's, what's top of the list? Sure. Um, well, we talked about orange wine, so we can knock that one off. Right. Um, I think rosé, which, you know, is, is something of a fad, but I think what's going to hold from it is that you see people drink rosé all year round now, which is amazing. Not seasonal. But, but there are different kinds of rosés that, yeah, you know, absolutely. for food and season, some heavier ones, yeah. different regions. Um, I think you see people drinking a diversity of sparkling wine now, uh, which some of which is, is Pet Nat, Petillon Naturel, which is uh, a little different than a champagne style. Explain what Pet Nat is. So pet- Every person that we talk about has to explain it. Right. So this could be the fourth so pet explanation. Nat, my, my, my literal two cent uh, on Pet Nat is um, it is sparkling wine that's made by one continuous process uh, and basically by trapping the bubbles in the same bottle where the wine uh, is ultimately poured. Where champagne adds another champagne, step. Champagne right. essentially starts a whole second fermentation. All right. So orange wines, pet nat, I would think natural. Yeah. I mean, natural is a whole a whole complicated okay. topic. But it certainly is a trend. Yeah, people, everyone wants to talk about it right now. Uh, it's a complicated complicated thing because I think it's not often what people think. What I'll throw in that I think is legitimately a trend is the lightening of red wines, which is to say and some of it is as easy as you know people were drinking Zinfandel and Cabernet and now they're drinking Pinot Noir. Um, but in a, more, in a more nuanced sense I think you see that there's a level of comfort with red wine being fresher, lighter, less tannic, less heavy uh, than it used to be. And, and I think some of that is... I think is you're right. And the, I think it's trending that way. Yeah. And I think some of it's just a change in cuisine. But there's this notion that light, you know, white wine is light and fresh and red wine is big and heavy. The, the lines are all blurred now. What about... So those are a few good trends. What about a few hot wine regions around the world to pay attention to... Or look at. I would guess you would throw something from France in because you were just there. How did you possibly guess? I'm just guessing. Um, yeah, France and California. Um, no, so within France, it's interesting. You know, everyone tends to think, well, if it's the new French wine, it's going to be a, an unknown region. What I'm finding is that really where there's change is in relatively well-known regions that are rediscovering like, themselves, like Champagne, okay, so like the Mus- grower movement. yeah, like like Muscadet, which was always considered kind of a cheap throwaway wine, but now 
not cheap, but a great value and a great food wine. And some guys are producing some good stuff. Yeah, and being made with extraordinary care. Right. Um, Beaujolais, certainly. The crew um, stuff, right? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and so you see places like that versus, let's say, uh, I, I always am worried I'm picking on Alsace too much, but, you know, Alsace is this place where there's great terroir, there's, uh, you know, hundreds of years of wine history, but there's just it was really tough to find that much innovation. There's some, there's people who are trying things. I, I weirdly had all of these great skin fermented Gewurztraminers, these orange Gewurztraminers, which is like the last thing you would think. Um, but it's not, it just hasn't been touched with this sense of vitality that you find in, let's say, Beaujolais. Right. Um, all right, so I want to subject you to the wine list. Let's do it. Those were a couple of good uh, trends and regions. All right, so it's simple question. What wine are you drinking right now? What, you know, what is appealing to you? What has come across? What are you drinking more of, you know, than other wines? Um, well, I, um, I'm taking a small hiatus from Chenin Blanc because having spent almost Don't, a month in the Loire. Stay away from Pascaline I got, I got we, we, we talked it out. You know, <laughs> okay, she understands. I, got, I, I, I drank four years' worth of Chenin in okay. a month, so I'm, I'm good. Um, Which is a great wine, yeah. but you did your due on Yeah. Um, I'm honestly, I'm drinking a fair amount of, I mean, I'm drinking a fair amount of Muscadet because I love it. I'm drinking a fair amount of Vermentino. Um, I love Vermentino. Yeah, both from Italy and from France, and I think... There's a savoriness to that grape that does so well with so many types of food. I agree. Uh, it's sort of where a lot of people want Chardonnay to be. I agree. It's a, it, it, to me, it's a little brighter and more interesting for food. All right, so that's a good segue. Favorite wine and food pairing. And I always say this. Don't tell me oysters and champagne. <laughs> I will totally not go down Muscadet oysters and champagne's and, fine. Muscadet and champagne. No, I mean, um, you know, I mean, I mean, you're, you're, I'll, you're I'll, I'll out you, a lot. I'll, 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 so I'll give, I'll give you two. You're in front of food. No, at no, no. Night. I'll, I'll, I'll give you two. Um, one, which is totally classic and, and it's going to make me sound, you know, really boring is... There's no boring um, answer. Is, you know, traditional Piedmontese pasta, which could be tyrene, it could be plein, which is a little agnolotti, um, preferably with truffles, but either way, um, and, and Barolo. And there's just something wintry about that. And it's, it being December, it's on my brain again. Um, and then completely, yeah, completely different. Um, I, I'm really a little obsessed with, um, mostly Sichuan cooking, but it could also be, let's say Dongbei, it could be some of the Northern Chinese, but the ones that are very, very spice focused, um, that usually tend to use Sichuan peppercorns, um, and Cabernet Franc. Cabernet Franc pairs well with spicy Szechuan. Yeah, real, and you find, and you find it could be Beijing style where they're using more right. cumin, but but um, there's Still a range there's a range of of Chinese cooking that that really goes brilliantly with Cabernet Franc. All right, give me your favorite wine restaurant or bar, some place you go to impresses you the service, the wine list, the environment. Doesn't have to be fancy. Yeah, this is where I get myself into trouble. Um, I mean, yeah, it's a setup question. Yeah, right? uh, the you know the the place that. Well, the, the, the how place, about for my listeners, a good place to go the, for the, an the experience? Pla the, the place that we we really enjoy going to right now, which is just a tiny bit under the radar. I mean, it's well known, but not it has, doesn't get maybe quite as much attention. Uh, is Compagnie des Vins Surnaturels downtown, uh, down on Center Street? Uh, and We're I think it's just it right. Yeah, I think what what Caleb Ganser's done there is 
has really defined this good balance where there's some natural, there's some very classic wines, there's a little bit more crazy radical stuff, but it all it all feels uh, like it's on a, a good continuum. You're not the first guest that brought him up, good. so there's a, a consensus because they're doing it right. He's got, and that's, he's, got the, he's got the fan club. That's what I was looking for. Do you have a favorite all-time wine? I really don't. You know, uh, do you, how about a favorite type? Is it again? It's you know so much of it for me is contextual. All right, so I, I don't want to pursue that one because that's okay. Yeah, you know I don't want to force you to that. All right, you would know this. I ask everyone this: best wine, fifteen bucks or under. Give me a red. Give me a white. Hmm. Uh, the white's easy. Um, I, I'll go with uh, the um, uh, the Marc Olivia, the the Devenda Pepier uh, Classic, the white label Muscadet. Which so is, Muscadet, which is still like twelve dollars, right? And the maker is uh, it's Marc Olivier, but it's Devenda La Pepier. Okay, um, and they make higher end, but it's the it just the, the classic white label is still a great great value. Red is always tricky under fifteen. I I used to kind of bump. That's it to why 20. I'm asking you the question. Um, and I God just, damn it, if you can't answer it, I mean it, the thing is, you know, again, you you can find. I mean, you know. There's a bunch of Beaujolais that hovers right around the $15 mark right now. Beaujolais, not the, not crew, just a village level. Um, village, Village Beaujolais, not the Nouveau, and not necessarily the crew. is a good yeah, red value. I mean, I'm trying to remember what Jean-Paul Brun is. It's probably just over 15 now. Oh, that's, but that's the range. But it's, but it's... But if you brought that to a friend's house, a party, I mean, it would show well. Yeah, everyone's going to love drinking. Okay. Do you... Do you have a favorite wine writer? Is there somebody through the years that... Uh, I mean, there are the classics, people like Hugh Johnson. Right. I, I still, I have to admit, I I spend a lot of time going back to read Gerald Asher um, in that he he's always found this great meeting of taste and science and literature. Nice. Um, and And there's, you know, there's there's tons of others. Um, you know, it's nice to go back and read Bob Thompson on California. Right. Um, but um, you know, it's this isn't helping only in that these are folks who have sort of you know mostly hung up their hats. But right. no, um, I, I but, but, but that. it's it's one of those things where I, for me you have to go back in a way and look for writers who were at least getting into it before it became about scores. Right. All right. So. We're going to move to our weekly wine sip. Um, Every week we taste a different wine on air. For our weekly wine sip this week, we're tasting, and John, you may have to help me with my French, which I'm terrible at, a 2013 Chateau Fontenay, Les Traverses de Fontenay. There you go. Fontenay, (laughs) bingo. Fontenay is the producer. The type of wine is the Les Traverses de Fontenay. This is from the Languedoc region. Um, in France. It's 100% Cabernet, but I don't think it's going to drink like a Cabernet because who makes it and what it is and all of that. It's an organic and biodynamic wine. It retails for about 18 bucks, so it falls in that category. And it's not readily available, but it's available at the wine stores that focus a little on natural wines, which is, you know, not your corner winery. So I'm pouring... It depends where you are. If you're in Bushwick, it's probably your corner yeah, wine store. Yeah, it's like every other wine store. All right. John. 
right, so let's look at the color first. It's a garnet red, right? Yeah. Nice color. All right, nose. So this is a Cabernet. Does it have any characteristic Cabernet noses? A little. I mean, it's it's um, you know, it's got a little bit of kind of green green tobacco to peppercorn on it. Right. Um, but it's not it's not particularly giving itself away as that. Right. All right. Let's let's throw it over the tongue and let's talk about the mouthfeel first. David, you want to come in and taste this? Everybody drinks. So, and make sure Jenna gets some. So, it's a medium bodied, light yeah, to medium? Yeah, light to medium. It doesn't taste like Cabernet. No, although it's. So, there's a couple things going on. One is, uh, I'd be curious how it was made because they clearly didn't want to extract very much from it. Well, I know that there's no oak. Yeah. So you don't taste the oak, none of the vanilla, none of the milkshake. Yeah, but even beyond that, did they, you know, did they really, did they work the grapes and the clusters at all, or did they just kind of let them infuse, which is now what everyone wants to do? Um, but usually when you do that with Cabernet, you get this very, that, that you know, what people in a nice way say is herbal, but otherwise kind of weedy, you know, bell peppery aspect right. in, 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 in excess. And there's not that, but I don't get a ton of the green peppery. Well, but the, the, th- the, the fascinating part I thought was, you said it's from Languedoc. And my question of course is aside from probably some limestone soils there, what is a, you know, relatively temperate grape, uh, going to express itself like in, in as close as France has to the, to being down south. Right. Um, and so it's, you know, there's a lot of Cabernet in Languedoc. I don't usually understand why it's there or how right. it expresses itself. Um, it's this, this isn't a knock against the winemakers. It's been there for a long time. Right. Um, but it's, you know, it's it's pleasant. It's I really grabbed lovely. it because it's yeah. Kermit Lynch. I mean, if it's if the whole idea is not great, at least Kermit Lynch walked around and figured out this is the guy that's doing it. Yeah, and there's you a know, nice right. mineral tone to it. It's fresh. It's it's really All fun. Right, so. I don't know how we score wine here, but we like this wine. We don't love it. It's yeah, okay. I like it. Okay. You know, I, I Is it a good it. wine for 18 bucks? It's okay, but, yeah, you know, I, I, I like it. Would I go out and, and, you and would drink grab another bottle? something else. I just, you know, it's it's one of those wines where, and, and this happens a fair amount. And talking about California, it happens a lot there. You say to yourself, all right, I get it. It's nice. It's well-made. But is there... Is there something to this? Is there a tradition that it's hold, you know, that it's trying to carry on? Is there a new tradition that it's trying to establish, or is it just kind of trying to, you know, trying to be? Yeah, there? I'm with you on it. I mean, it's it's fine. I wouldn't go out and buy extra yeah. bottles. I mean, if if you know, if you drank this, would you then turn around and say, you know, what's going to be hot next year is Cabernet from the Languedoc? I don't no. know that you would. No, I agree with that. Um, can you pair this with any food? Yeah, pretty much. What? Red meats or... Yeah, you know, burrito. <laughs> Good call. <laughs> Pepperoni pizza. There you go. I mean, you know, it's... Not I a mean, bad pizza wine. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, 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 it's a perfectly charming wine. Yeah. It's something that if you wanted to just, you know, Tuesday night, you're looking for something to keep you happy. I think it, it, it serves admirable, uh, admirably. So that's the 2013 Chateau Fontenay, which is F-O-N-T-A-N-E-S um, from Languedoc. We like it it's a serviceable wine but we're not telling you to run out and buy it all right if you have a question to make my my languedoc visit really awkward now 
Yeah, I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna uh, email them the show <laughs> to the Languedoc yeah. Wine Bureau or whatever. Yeah, Stopping me at the border. All right, we're going to wrap this up. If you have a question, a wine happening, or an event, hit me up at Sam at the Grape Nation. That's Sam at the Grape Nation. You can follow us at SBenRuby on Instagram and BenRuby on Twitter, and that'll cover all the Grape Nation stuff. Um, I want to thank our guest, John Bonet. Read John's work on Punch at punchdrink.com. Pick up, if you have any interest in California wine and you're anxious about French wines, Pick up John's The New California Wine, available Amazon bookstores. Um, when is the – you said the new French wine is 2018? 2018. Early, middle, late? Uh, it will definitely be late. <laughs> Too early to tell. Okay. All right. So thank you for that. John, thank you for coming in. I think we could have talked about all this stuff forever because there's so much going on. Thank you to our engineer, David Tatasher, and everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I just want to give you a last plug. Heritage Radio Network is a member-supported nonprofit radio station devoted to all things food and wine. Heritage needs your support during the big end-of-year fundraiser. A contribution in any amount not only supports HRN's 34 weekly programs, but comes with the exclusive member benefits of all kinds of tchotchkes and neat things. So if you like good food and wine, and you love good food and wine radio, make a donation today. You can go to heritageradionetwork.org backslash donate. That's heritageradionetwork.org backslash donate. We're making this pitch because it's the year end, and this is where we go out and do our big fundraising drive. So please help us out. I'm Sam Ben Ruby. You've been listening to The Grape Nation. We'll see you next week. Listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.